Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Assel, and I'm sitting here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm down here for uh, Inno Haley, which is uh, Atlanta's um, Tiki Weekend. Um, it's the second year for it, and they've it's been a really fantastic um, uh, festival so far. There's been some amazing seminars. And in fact, one of them was uh, I attended was from my guest here today. So today on the show, uh, we have Sven Kirsten, who's I, I don't even know how to list the accolades. I mean, in the tiki world, none of us would be um, educated. We wouldn't be connected. We wouldn't even know what the hell it is. We'd still be drinking Bahama Mamas and thinking that that was tiki, you know. And and um, so like just a, a quick rundown for those of our listeners that if if you've made it three and a half years into this show and you don't know anything about Tiki, then you haven't been listening. But author of books like Tiki Pop, Book of Tiki, Tiki Style, The Art of Tiki, and it's just an ongoing list. There's more and more and more and more coming. And so welcome to the show, Sven. Okay, thank you. Glad to be here. I have a disclaimer. I am not drunk. I'm, you know, so I hope it's not going to be one of those German uh, rational interviews, uh, <laughs> and you guys are going to have some fun finding out stuff. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 60 minutes. We're like, gotcha. This is going to be much more sober than, than the Jeff episode, that I, I assure you. We've got coffee in front of us instead of, you know, it's two bottles of rum. Yeah, <laughs> The morning after. Yeah, I was going to say, the last two nights have definitely done the job. So, I mean, it really is hard to, um, to underestimate, you know, what you've done for the industry uh, as far as in tiki and in cocktails. But what's interesting, so like Jeff, you know, has largely concentrated on that end of it. And so we talk a lot about like cocktails and cocktail culture and tiki and all that, but that's just one leg of it. And we've never really addressed the much more important leg. We kind of touched on it a little bit with Martin Kate when we talked about Steve Crane and then the art of it, because it's the art of it is something that we take very seriously at the Inferno Room um, with all of our Papua New Guinea artwork that we've collected over the last, you know, well, we didn't, but it's, you know, 50 to 60 years old. And yeah, so sure. that's something that, like, as you look through your books, which are fascinating to look through because you, you've hunted down things that no one else has the patience to hunt down. So I, give me, like, a, I guess... Let's go back to the beginning of, like, you know, where you came from. You, you obviously have a very heavy California accent. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, you weren't born here in the States. No, I was born in a poor town of Hamburg in northern Germany. And that's, you know, I count that as some, one of my influences. Uh, you know, and, and my school was in right, a couple blocks away of the Hamburg Ethnographic Museum. And we, we took school trips to that early on. And then I, you know, there's also uh, the famed uh, uh, Hamburg red light district of St. Pauli, where you had all these sailors bars and 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 so you know the tiki is really a combination of that sort of. A, it is a combination of a sailor bar and an ethnographic museum. Uh, to me, that is, you know, I um, I realize that in the tiki cocktail industry, I didn't even know there was an industry, but I guess there is, um, you know, tiki just stands for uh, tiki cocktails. And right. I, I was sort of really made aware of that last year when I attended, uh, as, a, as a presenter, I attended uh, uh, Tiki by the Sea in, in, the, in the Wildwoods in, in New Jersey. Yes, and, yeah. Um, it was I a great you event. I uh, met uh, some of our people over there, I think, during depending on which... Probably. Um, but I I couldn't believe my eyes and ears when everybody 
was referring to tiki, tiki this and tiki that, but what they really meant was tiki cocktails. Right. You know, to me, tiki is an art form and an all-encompassing, uh, you know, design architecture uh, uh, genre that, that uh, the cocktails are but one facet. But I realized that, that you know, there was this, this group of uh, uh, young uh, bartenders that all had won the, uh, you know, it, it being attended mm-hmm. to the event. And, uh, you know, they were very passionate about their... Their, their craft and they were like like this this group like this like I remember like sort of this solidarity from from the punk days you know right. they were like the young yeah. punks of Tiki and they really didn't have a chance being most of them being a lot of them being from the east coast or from smaller towns in America they didn't uh, grow up with this exposure to Tiki that I was fortunate to to grow you know uh, to be exposed to in Southern California. Right. So that's where I was heading with that. So you're born in Hamburg, but you, the tiki culture there wasn't, and again, no. you know, I mean, the farther you go back, the less you hear the word tiki used until where I guess the sixties, where it was just plastered all over everything. And I, I, your talk yesterday that I attended, you know, we got to see some of the old places and photos and all your books are like that. But yeah, you made the jump from from Germany to Southern California, where it's just really ground zero. Well, California in general is ground zero for uh, all tiki, all things tiki. Yeah, and especially Los Angeles. And, and I initially came to Los Angeles in 1980. Actually, I came to California in 1980, went to San Francisco to the Art Institute because it was it seemed easier to to adapt. Uh, San Francisco seemed more European. And you didn't didn't need a car right away mm, to survive, right, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I went there to the art institute, um, made a couple of short films, and then got into the American Film Institute in L.A. in 1982. And then, you know, uh, I, I in the in Los Angeles, I became more and more aware uh, of these cool old buildings that were around because I was, you know, working in music videos. Uh, right, you're a cinematof- of, cinematographer, right? Yes, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm. I went to AFI as a cameraman. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and I wanted to work in Hollywood. So I was really lucky that the you know I got there in the early '80s, and this music video explosion happened. So uh, when I got out of film school, I was working as a gaffer on you know. Tons of music videos. I, 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 okay, let's pause there for a second. You're 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 passing over some really cool shit <laughs> because you're like working as a gaffer now. I had to like look through some of your credits because I knew of them like kind of viscerally, but like you were a gaffer on Big Time with Tom Waits. Like no, that, that was actually oh yeah, I was the coolest a gaffer on thing ever. But and then you you were like a cinematographer for like Alice and Chains, yes. like all these fantastic like iconic bands, you know, of that era. I did, uh, I, I was a DP on, uh, director of photography on, on two Cramps videos. Yes, I saw proud. that, that's amazing, man. <laughs> and, but at the same time, I, you know, I was a gaffer on Madonna's Borderline, her first big music video. I mean, that's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it was just a, a great way of, of learning the craft because, the you know, the rule for music videos was, 
back then, if if you make a video that looks like the one before, you're boring. Right. So you could, ex you know, you would. It was such a great experimental ground of, of you know, for for cameramen and lighting and stuff. You know, that's uh, interesting that you say that because you're right. That's kind of largely gone away because now everyone has a YouTube channel and there's no real like. Uh, outlet for music videos and there were a lot of really kick-ass like DPs uh, and directors and all that that came out of that scene yeah and high concept videos you know it was you know it's, it's just like the other uh, thing of the music videos that has gone the way the LP covers you know that yes. was such a great art form you had this canvas of this large square and you know people came up with these amazing concepts i feel like that's starting to maybe come back a little bit now that the vinyl resurgence i think yeah. everybody's not only excited about the colored vinyl which i'm a sucker for colored vinyl yeah, too but of course. but you know but yeah the yeah, large yeah. format where like i mean you look at sergeant peppers or something you know you can know. dig into that really hardcore if it's a cd cover you can't and if you're listening to spotify you definitely can't you I, know? I tried with my my little sound of tiki cd i don't know if you have one but it I, it, it it you know it, uh, I, I first of all i was glad that i you know, this German label I did it with, it wasn't a, the jewel cover. I hate those yeah. plastic jewel covers that mm -hmm. always break and stuff, and you have to fumble the booklet out of it and stuff. No, this is, you know, the cardboard thing was just he stuck in it. And then I did this little 50-page booklet with it that explained every song and in the context to Tiki Culture, because I fe had felt that, you know, Exotica music... And, and tiki culture had lived this kind of parallel existence. Right. Everybody was into both, but I wanted to connect the two more. And um, actually, when I, you know, in my, uh, when I put out my first book, the book of tiki, I, for a while, me and Tashin wanted to put a, an exotica CD in the back of it, but then it came down to, okay, to keep it at that price, you have to either cut uh, two chapters uh, or if you put the CD in or lose the CD and then I'd rather I wanted it to, to be a complete as a book right. so my CD came of sort of it's like the the latecomer to the book of Tiki in terms of music <clears throat> well and that's again I think that drives that point home that we started talking about in the beginning is that like Tiki is more than just the cocktails it's really great that we have all of these young bartenders that are obsessed uh, I I was just talking yesterday and and i can't remember but i've said it to a number of people like there's going to be a lot of people um in 40 years whose first introducing introduction to tiki and tiki culture happened right now like right. the first time that they went to go get a mai tai somewhere yeah. and they got a proper one and that's i think we're winning because you are i would say you're more often than not going to be able to get an, a proper 1944 trader vix mai tai at yeah. most bars now like it you know it's not so much you know the the pineapple orange juice you know right. kind of whatever the resort version that we get so it's changing <clears throat> but it's like that's i think where a lot of people's introduction is through it right like you you learn the drinks you have a few you've introduced to a mai tai right. or a jet pilot or a zombie and then you start to what's the music that's playing in here <laughs> yeah. you know like why is the architecture like this yeah and so you work really hard as um as an urban archaeologist. Right. Um, and that's really, I mean, that's where we get the information. So explain to me, like, you know, what you see urban archaeology as and, and your role in it. Um, you know, it's it's like looking for remnants of past styles uh, of culture and architecture in, in the urban environment and, and seeing it under layers of 
renovation and, and recognizing it and sometimes even finding the, the one rare gem like the Trader Vicks here in Atlanta that that hasn't changed mm -hmm. for for decades. You know, it's still in its original condition. And um, you know, then sort of like putting the pieces of the puzzle together of where how did this happen? You know, how did this style become in vogue and then also why did it fall out of vogue? Right. You know, I'm I'm I, I, I'm interested in the devolution as much as I'm interested in the evolution because it all reflects on our on the human existence in general. I mean I we can only like thank you and and, and Jeff and all of your like, crew like in California at that time in like the the early nineties where those buildings were still rescuable, right. you know, and and the and the drinks were still rescuable because the the original bartenders were still around or their kids were still around, and it was a really special time. And I don't think if if you guys hadn't been there to do that, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today. Yeah, you know, it, and it just sort of uh, amounted to me uh, to a, to a book for me because um, I kept on collecting more and more information, finding more places and, you know, um, finding more paper ephemera about it and then sort of, it, it, you know, the, uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together to, to tell a story to me. I'm always, you know, I'm a cameraman, so I always approach things from a visual standpoint. And I just liked the eye candy that I saw when I... Uh, uh, discovered oceanic arts in the late 80s for the first time and Leroy pulled out this stack of menus from behind the counter of places that they had worked on it was just the, the graphics of, of those menu covers where it's just like wow this is so cool you know somebody should make a book about this this was like 1989 and by 1992 I looked around and, and, and nobody was doing a book so I sort of said to myself, you know, I, I guess I have to be the one to do the book. And I never considered myself an author or, or you know, bookmaker or anything like that. Um, because be coming from Germany, you have this really high intellectual tradition of literature. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, me not having studied anything like that in university, you know. But that's a great thing about America and California. You, if you really have a passion for something... You don't need the the degree. You just get into it and you do it. And, and you know, now four books later. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're working on on more. And the one thing about your books, you, you said, you know, the graphic part of it really draws you in. And so um, it's almost ground zero for a lot. <clears throat> Pardon me. For a lot of the things that we see out now. So, you know, there's obviously like the different legs of Tiki that, you know, as they come together, we all kind of recognize that. But if you're outside of like kind of the community where we all know each other, yeah. they seem very disparate, right? Like the Exotica or the surf music or the Tiki carvers or the cocktail guys and all that. When we come together, it comes together as kind of one beast. But so what I was going to address from your books is they are dense. Like they're really fucking dense, like in a, in a good way. Yeah. Because like even like what in in a book where you would kind of have like the throwaway graphic on the corner, right, or whatever. Right. You're like throwaway graphic to fill in some some uh, white space in one of your books might be like a matchbook from 1963, and it, you've got to zoom in on to like check everything out. And so, it's it's dense with knowledge and 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 all these kind of the flotsam and jetsam that's kind of arrived in your possession over the years. And like the, uh, recently, what was the, um, 
uh, Dave Hansen, uh, Lake Tiki Woodcrafts, did. he did the uh, Try a Zombie you yeah. know, carving, and that came out of one of your books. Like, yeah, yeah. And we've got one. one we have my, one hanging in our bar, actually. It was one of my pit sub subjects early on, the cannibal carving set on the beachcomber hat. And then, you know, it's, it's also fun for me. Uh, each book, of course, I collected more knowledge. So not until I put out Tiki Pop, Thanks to uh, Swanky, you know, Tim Glasner, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, researching this whole connection between the Maikai and Don the Beachcomber, and that the Chicago Beachcomber crew was hired, was poached for the Maikai. And it, not until then did it really became clear to me that the Don the Beachcomber tikis are like the perfect metaphor for from the chains of pre tiki, all the tropical bamboo bars that happened since the 1930s and especially during the 40s in America and tiki which didn't really happen until the mid 50s and you know because these cannibal carvings Don the Beachcomber had them with him from his early career on and you can see him uh, you can see them behind the bar in Hollywood and then in Chicago but he never used them as a logo he never they never appeared anywhere, except on, as a little, you know, icon on his famous uh, map menu. But otherwise, he, you know, and, and the Thornton brothers that founded the Maikai took over all of the, you know, the Donna Beach Kuma crew. But also, they 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 were the first ones that used the cannibal carvings as their logo tiki's, and there, the Maikai is a great example of the use of a tiki as a logo. And um, that really marks that generational change from the Donna Beachcomber pre-Tiki generation to the Tiki generation of, and in, in essence, it's like us, like you. The Thornton brothers were like you, a couple of generations dropped out, but then we're the next right. generation, <laughs> generation that, that pick up on, on what they liked and that, you know, because the Thorntons were regulars at the Chicago Beachcomber, and and they just said, "Oh, this is so cool! We love these cocktails. We love this decor. We want something like that ourselves." And so they went to Florida and and you know uh, built a Maikai. But um, yeah, you know they used those cannibal carvings for the first time as a logo, and that's how that's what marks tiki style: the use of the tiki as a logo. Nowadays, you know, of course, where the term is so popular. Any anything with a shred of bamboo in yes, it gets right. called tiki, and it's not. That's interesting that you say that because yeah, we are a couple of generations kind of dropped out, and so we're seeing this resurgence. At least that's the way I see it. I mean, do you feel like we're in a third wave here? You know, yeah, between the between 40s post World War II. Yeah, you know, some people even divide the tiki revival into waves now. You know, our early nineties, right? Small underground tiki revival with tiki news and stuff. Then came after the book of tiki. That you know, there came the the first big push in the in the two thousands, then came you know with Jeff Berry and and craft cocktails. I mean, do I I have to remind you that when the craft cocktail movement started picking up in the like mid to to late two thousands. Um, they were st uh, still kind of sort of poo-pooing tiki. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, well, that's that, that's exactly what. But So my business partner at the Inferno Room, Chris, um, he was working for me at the time, and he was pushing hard, like, pretty much from 2010 immediately. And we were just in Indianapolis seeing craft cocktails. Right. That's it. And it was still a time when you went into a cocktail bar. If you ordered 
anything that wasn't boozy, bitter, and stirred. Uh, it was like, ugh, classic. Ugh, no. And yeah. so, and I said, wait, it's not time. These bartenders don't want to do it. We'll never find a staff. Yeah. And then when I started going into, um, into those same bars a couple of years later, and I started to see like maybe a missionary's downfall on the menu. Yeah. I was like, okay, they're not like, you know, pooing hey, on this hey, anymore. Hey. Like, maybe this is the time. And so a lot of other pieces fell together and that's, that's kind of what became the Inferno Room. But it, what's funny is because you used to talk about that, like, that's not tiki, that's not tiki. And we're seeing some of the similar trends, right? Happening that killed this in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. And it's happening again. History is repeating itself because um, it's great that the cocktails get out there and people get an education of, of, of what they do and why they, where they came from, hopefully where they came from. But, you know, the... And you and I have a similar opinion on this, which um, you've, you've been very kind in your words online for the Inferno <laughs> Room. Um, but oh, we yes, started this project off as being like young hotshot guys. We're not young, but like <laughs> hotshot guys, I guess, that were like, we know how to make a badass drink. Yeah. We, we, we know how to do tiki, but we were like, we're going we're gonna to put our own stamp on it. We're going to do it our way. Yeah. We're going to do this. And then we well, started building it, and we realized very, very quickly, No. Because we would sit in the room and we would look at this and be like, that looks kind of cool. But Vic would never let that happen. And we were like, all right, tear it down. Let's do it the other way. And then yeah. after about two months, I looked at Chris and I was like, we didn't know we were traditionalists, did we? <laughs> you know? I know. It's 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 really a, a, a strange position that I find myself in, you know, being accused of being a purist sometimes and, and you know, or just called a historian. I don't see myself, you know, just like Jeff Barry. He's not just a, a cocktail historian. I'm not just a tiki historian. I've been with the tiki revival scene and all the artists that are doing new tiki art since since the 90s. You know, I've been supportive of the the whole new aesthetic and wave of tiki. I'm just warning not to go too far away from the source. Yeah. Because it's that's what happened. Right. And, and, the fern and, bar of the 70s. Yeah. And the, and the young people don't realize that. They, they, they look at me and saying, you know, that's not tiki. And, you know, uh, they think, you know, I'm being a stickler for things. They don't they don't know the history of the tiki bars disappearing almost completely. I mean, they have, right. when I got into it, Tiki wasn't even a word for it, you know? Uh, I couldn't find anything on it. It was so completely gone. It was gone out of the memory of the people. The first veterans that I started talking to, it was like they remembered some kind of dim dream that they mm, had. Yeah. <laughs> really. And, and you know, and, and the, the, the newcomers now don't realize this. They see Tiki all around, especially when you go on the internet, you know, mm -hmm. and they think it's always been there. No, it's, it went away because it got watered down and it got, you know, uh, Really, you know, diluted into into boring. Even literally, generics. like the the premixes started to come around. Yeah, and that did exactly. no one any favors. Perfect yeah. example. And um, so, I'm not a tiki purist that wants to be every tiki bar just like the old ones were. And in fact, I you know I'm 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 wondering why. You know, I, I love the Inferno Room of what I've seen of it. It's it's you know it is that perfect environment of of the getaway, just like the. You know, what a better example is the Trader Vic's here in Atlanta. I mean, you're you're in this hotel downtown with these concrete towers. Right. Everything is cold and gray and and concrete. And you go down into the basement and you're in this complete organic 
warm, you know, uh, textured, uh, primitive environment. That is just like the perfect example of what a tiki bar should be. But I'm not always, I'm not, you know, like saying every tiki bar has to look like floor to ceiling full tiki. Sure. Um, I'm waiting for good examples of modern tiki, you know, that that maybe bring in a little bit more mid-century modernism or something, uh-huh. but that... You're reading my mind, I've got this idea and I can't tell everybody about it because <laughs> yeah. one of these days I'm going to make it happen, but, yeah, but I have to it, work my way around the Windows issue, but, you know... You have to know the sources. Right. And God damn it, the main source is the image of the tiki. And now... In this in this day and age, where everybody is so worried about the cultural appropriation, it's really unfortunate how some bar owners they they want to open a tiki bars and then they shy away from using the tiki image because it's supposed to be somebody's god. You know, it's I I feel I've, I've proven with my books that it's a it's an American pop culture. And in that way, it is you know separated from what it used to, be, what what the original used to be, and plus of course, it, all of it was created out of love for the culture, right? Not out of some kind of wanting to grab it and you know, uh, make it a white people uh, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, not at all. No, the white people are envious of mm. the islanders' culture, but uh, apart from that, what I'm you know getting at is that. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of self-censorship out there because it's understandable, of course, when you're a business, when you're starting a business, you don't want to have to deal with bad publicity. So it's really not the bar owner's fault. Um, it's it's the media's fault, you know, the outrage culture's fault of people, you know, jumping on a bandwagon and saying, ooh, cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation. But I wish more more, you know, new bar owners would have the guts, like, you know what's uh, the, the great place that that basement Kahuna built in in Savannah now, man. That oh looks, yeah, it man, looks fantastic. Yeah. You know why? Oh my God, those doors. <laughs> you know, well, it, I mean, we that's we, what we do the same. Is. We're like we we see ourselves more as a museum of of like middle epic, like you know New Guinea artwork. I mean, we have a huge collection. And we didn't alter it whatsoever when right. we wanted to supplement that with with new carvings. You know, they we study quite heavily. We work close with Dave Hansen, yeah. and you know he, he studies extensively at the at the museum in, in Milwaukee that has a great PNG. Right. That's how uh, all American carvers got into it. They got museum books, and you know they 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 copied, but then added their own. Uh, style to and, the and those of us that are like diehards, I mean, we're traveling to like further our knowledge, and that's why you know if you're in it for the bandwagon, yes, right now Tiki's having a moment. It's likely to you know go away at some point, at least the trend, and that's okay because there's always going to be the diehards that keep it rolling. Right. And you know we 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 keep talking about our forty year plan. Like I'm in my mid forties now. If we can roll this you know to into our 80s and we did our job because you know Mike High's been around for longer than a generation so if we can keep our place in that same way so to be timeless and that's where I'm seeing like a lot of the kind of non-traditional bills like I, I'm just personally I don't like wallpaper and I see it used a lot you know because I oh, think the, it's the palm leaf wallpaper yes, thing yes right because it's a it's a I slippery can't. slope into fern bar you know absolutely it is fern bar and it is you know it was I'm sorry to say this, but it was clearly born out of the cultural appropriation paranoia. Because when when um, uh, the place in Chicago Lake, 
um, uh, Lost Lake. Lost Lake Open. They ex expressly, you know, uh, I'm, I don't remember his name, but he he expressly said, "Well, this is more like, you know, it's not a tiki bar." And and but because of the cocktails and him having such a great. Uh, you know, uh, uh, name as a as a uh, mixologist and, and craft cocktail person. You know, it got plastered all over the imbibe and all right. of the internet. And you saw, you know, you saw the photos of the leafy wallpaper. And then, you know, of course, all the other bar owners that wanted to do something like this said, oh, look, this is actually kind of cheap. You know, we can just put wallpaper right. on the Yeah, certainly, on the it, walls. it's certainly a lot laborious the hanging bar. and matting like we're doing. We did, got it took us forever. We, we, we realized during our build out why you don't go into tiki palaces any longer. Yeah. Everything's small because, God, it's a lot of work to layer the walls. I'm going into Vic's. It's like, holy crap. I mean, this stuff's been added for decades. But but there is, I will give one guy an exception. And, and the, well, I guess that's the other thing, right? So we are seeing the the leafy kind of Martinique wallpaper that's yeah. going up everywhere. Um, and But we're also starting to see, uh, at least in a public consciousness, um, of some of those owners that realize that what they're doing isn't tiki. And they're like, we're a tropical bar. You know, right. We're not trying to be tiki bar. We're like, right. and we often hear... We, we're influenced by South Florida. You know, they want to be that kind of okay. like Miami. But in Bangkok, um, actually had the guy on the show, Sebastian De La Cruz. He's got a tropical bar, even called Tropic City. Doesn't yeah. use the word tiki yeah. anyway. In fact, he immediately, like, when we sat down in front of microphones, he's like, I am not a tiki bar. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. thank you. But all of his was hand-painted, wow. and it is gorgeous. Oh, it of is course. like, I was like, wow, you really kind of, like, Circumvented the the cheesiness of the of the Martinique wallpaper, the mm. the and like it's and he was like, <laughs> I don't know yes. if I should say this because he's still got to work in Bangkok, but he said that they just closed the doors, ate some mushrooms, and painted the walls. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, it's you know they have a good mushroom dish here. They do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the problem is with that. <laughs> so, but these books are where we basing that off of. I mean, you know, these are they're going to hang around the book of tiki's now. It's been in a couple of different editions now at this point yeah yeah and you can still get it for a good price on amazon i mean or just get the smaller tiki star but you know i really fought hard to make tiki pop in uh, available for 20 bucks now yes I'm, you did uh, and i recently bought a copy to bring here because i was like I, I don't fanboy out too often but i was like I, I want sven to sign my copy and it's it's a much smaller footprint than than the original and yeah. we have both um, but, so I bought this one and I forgot to bring it. <laughs> well, you just have to invite me to the Inferno room. Oh, you okay. have an open invitation on <laughs> okay. that. So as this, you know, you're going out and you're, so your urban archaeology that you've been working on and that, that stemmed out of, out of Los Angeles, yeah. but you travel a lot. You're a cinematographer. You still work very, very deep in that industry. I mean, this is not yeah. just like a hobby. You sometimes work in Hollywood, well, it's, it's, but you're it's, working in Europe as well. Well, in 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 exclusively in Europe because I started to, when I had like you know slow phases in the 90s in in LA I started taking work in Europe because I I was like the guy from Hollywood you know mm -hmm. and, and what happens in LA there's you know such an influx of new people coming into that town wanting to work in the film industry if you're not around when when they call you a couple of times they go on to the next person sure and so uh, gradually all my connections in L.A. died off. And I started working for, you know, shooting German TV movies of the week and, and, and stuff. 
the great thing was that the German public likes exotic locations and other locations. So I not only shot in Germany, but I, you know, I got to shoot in, in you know, uh, Prague, in the Saint Petersburg, in 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 Paris. Um, one of my favorite things was like just in 2015, I, I got to spend six weeks in Havana shooting a German oh, TV movie in Havana. You know, for I mean, staying there for free, getting paid, and and uh, working with local people, and it, it was you know it's fantastic. And you never stop. Like even when we were like trying to to nail down a time where you and I could meet up this weekend. I mean, you were like, I've I've got a project to do while I'm there. So yeah, you're I'm constantly leaving. working on more books. Oh yeah, that too. Well, I thought you meant shooting. I'm I'm leaving on Tuesday to. Oh, that's right. You're going to. That's right. You did tell me that you're gone, gone. Going, going to for three months to Germany to shoot six episodes of a TV series because my books don't pay the mortgage. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that my my cameraman, you know, my job is still paying for my tiki hobby. It's funny that a lot of you uh, that you know helped us to to grasp what we're doing today in the 90s, like, came out of that film industry. I mean, you know. Well, you know, I, th I think I made the connection in Tiki Pop pretty well of how how Tiki and, uh, you know, is, is really connected to Hollywood. And, you know, the, right. that, you know, with Don the Beachcomber, starting with Don the Beachcomber, being an advisor of on, on movies, loaning some of his props that he brought back from his, uh, you know, sailing trips to the South Seas and having all these Hollywood celebrities, mm -hmm. you know, and we're big Steve Green fans, obviously, from Indiana, so well, I mean, you can't break that Hollywood connection. But also, you know, the, the studio uh, art department people, you know, gladly were, were hired to build out these tiki bars. I mean, they had the know-how because they knew how to put... That's what a tiki bar really is. It's like a film set that you walk into and you're playing the role of a South Sea Islander, you know? Mm. And it's, it's it's inhabited by all these characters, fictional characters from the South Seas, like the beachcomber, the trader, the the hula girl, and, you know, the tiki idol. Those are, those are like, you know, came from literature, but then became film characters. Right, yeah, and, and it's... I just can't again, you know, emphasize how important what the work that you're doing because it's it's tough and it's laborious and you have a job <laughs> because like you said it's you know it, it it doesn't pay the bills but uh, I mean really going out there so as you travel for whatever job you're working on at the moment whether it be a book or a conference or filming yeah. um, when you're looking at like the architecture and a lot of your books are heavily you know you've documented some really beautiful like motels and like the way that mid-century kind of yeah, yeah. you know Polynesian tiki whatever you want to you know label it as how that really was starting to pervade the entire American culture I mean you know even in Indiana we're you know in the, Indiana in the 50s and 60s not a hotbed right. you know for Polynesian cocktails and you know carving you know we don't have palm trees sitting around or anything like that but we still had a place maybe a couple still trying to figure out exactly how many right. um, but Chicago as well and these are cold weather places right. so like how how far did that spread I mean did it spread to this like in at, at least in the mid-century into other countries or there are places that you're finding during your kind of oh, yeah. exploration you know, it, it, it uh, I mean it started in California like we said earlier and but in the in the mid-century California was really sort of 
a lifestyle right. guide for the rest of America. If you look at at the big magazines and stuff, they always had stories about, you know, f uh, uh, houses and 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 families living and uh, doing the California living, and so so that that's how it spread from California to the rest of America. But um, you know, one of my favorite uh, side subjects is in in Europe. You know, there's one thing that's really s strange to me that it didn't take hold in Paris, uh, in, in in Paris and France in general. Because France had this fantastic history of with with Tah being you know connected to Tahiti and Paul Gauguin, you know the mm. the famous South Seas artist. And so why? In my 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 only explanation is. That the the French were hindered by good taste, <laughs> you know. Really, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's why I left Germany because Germans are too too boring, and you know, they they don't go hog wild like Americans with themes. And I love themed environments. And that was certainly a time for it in the states too, because I mean, all this stuff coincided also with the interstate highway system, and you know, yeah. like making. You roadside attractions, yeah, the roadside attractions, and right. then that's where I find, um, you know, just some of the most interesting kind of mid-century architectures left over in the motels, and and California to me is just it's it's an attack on all of my senses because yeah. there's so much that's preserved there, and and yeah, a lot, of, still, lot, of, it's, it's a lot of it has gone away, you know, like things like the Bahuka, a shock to all of us, you know, they just all of a sudden it was in the midst of the Tiki revival, and they closed their doors. Without warning, but you have to realize that you know the the people that run these places have been slaving behind a hot stove all their life, and if some developer comes and offers them a couple of millions to retire on, you can't blame him. So it's it's every place like here the Trader Vic's that still is authentic and is still around is really precious now. So I was but, talking with Paul yesterday during his presentation um, about the Trader Vic's or about I'm sorry, uh, history of Tiki in Atlanta and how much the locals had to fight to keep that during one area of management that wanted to turn that into a sports bar. Right. So how much is your influence kind of rescuing things? Because it's been recently in the news and um, you know the the rescue of Tiki Bob. <laughs> so right. like you know all these things that have been painted over and they've been kind of I mean literally plastered over like. So now you're you you've documented all these things, but you're actually become like a voice of influence. And so, how active do you stay in that? And, and have you seen some really big successes to prove that this should not go away? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm I've been active in preservation. All my best friends in Los Angeles are uh, either members of the um, LA Mod Com, Los Angeles Modernism Committee, or co-founding members, or the Palm Springs Modernism Committee. Uh, now Palm Springs is like the the hub of mid-century modern mm -hmm. architecture and revival um, because of it. Um, but but you know my friends like Chris Nichols and, and Peter Marusi have been active since the nineties in in f making people aware that mid-century modernism stuff from the fifties is worth preserving because before that you know the, all the historical societies and stuff they. They didn't go any further in like, you know, maybe late 1800s or, or 1920s, mm -hmm. you know, and, right. and and great uh, modernist architecture got destroyed left and right. But there is a saying that that goes like something like, you know, uh, 
a, a trend or a style is always at its greatest danger just before it's getting recognized, mm. which is true, you know, and it's still happening. Um, the economic realities are such that, you know, if people, you know, like the Bahuka owners get money thrown at them, you know, they uh, they don't care, you know, they, they, they take it and, and the place is gone. And, and the Tiki revival in general doesn't really have uh, you know enough money to jump in and and save a place just for its historic value you know there mm-hmm. always has to be an economic uh, uh, payback you know a mixed use thing or whatever i did one of my you know uh, favorite uh, saves was very early on um, the tropics motel in palm springs which is the last motel that has its giant a frame entrance you know, there's one thing, sorry, now that I mentioned A-frame, is there's one thing that I uh, wish new Tiki bar owners would use more, the, the concept of the A-frame, because that is so clearly a symbol of roadside Tiki culture, these tall, towering A-frames that call attention to themselves, and they're such a great mixture of mid-century modernism and the, the you know, the, the native island hut. Um, and it's so easy to build, you know. I mean, uh, you just put two poles together and throw some some roofing on it. <laughs> well, I I'm know very you're... happy to hear this. No, because we're in the, actually, well, this will be the first time the public will have heard anything about it. But we're getting ready to annex the coffee shop next to the Inferno Room uh, that just went out of business. Oh, okay. And on the interior, the interior actually goes up in a straight A-frame. That was oh. just coincidence. So we're thatching the whole thing so that we actually have kind of our... Our, our New but, Guinea spirit house, but, you know. But can you make an A-frame on the entrance? Well, not on the entrance, um, because we are in a historic district as well, and so See? everything wants it to look That's like it was in 1885 when the building was, was constructed, and so we have to adhere to it's those standards. It's such irony. We fought so off- hard just over a front door. You know, like we fought just to be able to put a wooden front door with Dave uh, doing some carving on it. Yeah. And they wouldn't let us touch it. So what we ended up doing was putting, because the, there was glass in there in, the, in 1924, there was glass. They wouldn't let us take the glass out. Um, blessing in disguise, because, you know, Dave also, you know, puts a lot of puka shells and stuff in his carvings. And those things would have gotten stolen immediately. But uh, so we were like, well, technically the wood could be behind the glass on the inside, right? And they were right. like, yeah, we don't have jurisdiction over that. So oh, great. we now have it just behind the glass panel that they wanted. But yeah, it, it, it makes it very difficult to, to do that, even though it's era appropriate. Yeah, you know? city, city regulations are such an irony <laughs> where they try to preserve something, but they don't allow you to do something else that would be, you know, as historically interesting. And appropriate like for the time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it does get tough. So th- I'm glad to hear that you're, like, working so close with preservation because that you, you're you keeping yourself incredibly busy, you know, between your working uh, job, you know, spending weeks and weeks out of the country as a cinematographer, and, and your books are just, like I said, they're just all the little ephemera and, and flotsam and jetsam that ends up on your desk and, it, you know, just preserving it, scanning it. I call it eye candy. How much of that stuff is actually in your possession? I mean, do you borrow it and, and scan you know, and it, photograph, or it, do you have it just sitting in your house full of, like, this museum? The Book of Tiki at my house is like a museum. Unfortunately, recently this has been more sort of like the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of stuff is, <laughs> is still sitting in the living room in boxes. Yeah, you know, I love 
curating uh, an exhibition or, or a book or an article or something and pulling stuff from all my files. That's the fun part of it because you're creating something, but then to have to put it back uh, <laughs> right. in the right place and stuff, it's, it's, that's work. So well, if you run across the Ark of the Covenant, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that there was an Ark of the Covenant just on eBay recently, which were the original <laughs> cannibal carvings, you know, that in the Don the Beachcomber style. Although mm. they were machine carved, those that trio is kind of really, really rare, and it went up to like twenty eight hundred. So that's in, in, interesting. So you were kind enough to give me like the tour of Trader Vic's that I think very few people are qualified to give. Like we walk through and you could point out like that's from this era or this location and that's who did this. And you know all the artists and that's where it gets really geeky into people that are the fanatics within kind of tiki culture and look, knowing who the artists are and, and such. Yeah. And it's... Um, it's it's rare to be able to to have that opportunity. Uh, Martin Kate at, at Smuggler's Cove, you know, I've done that with him as well. I mean, you can spend four or five hours walking around like that came out of the Trader Vic's Farmer House, right. that you know, in what year. And so, you know, that's where I think most people when they come into a bar, they're just like, oh, I don't know, I can get a great painkiller here, but they're not realizing that they're literally surrounded by a living museum. Right. It, yeah. But it's you know the the, the if the painkiller is the the gateway drug, that's fine, you know. And right. I, I always say, I, although I'm in this, you know, weird position now where I have to rein in the new generation of cocktailians that don't know anything about mm -hmm. cocktail, try to make them aware of uh, about tiki, try to make them aware of of what what tiki really is, that it's a whole culture. Are you finding that the young bartenders that are coming to it through the cocktails? Um, through learning a Mai Tai at their job that has nothing to do with, like, you know, the, the tiki or Polynesian cocktails, are you finding them receptive to it? Are they curious? Do they want to know where it came from? Yes and no. You know, there, there are those and there are those. But, you know, mentioned, you, you were talking earlier about people, uh, you know, about the trend maybe waning and stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, just in this weekend, I, I had a bunch of people come up to me with you know, the available books of mine, Art of Tiki or Tiki Pop right now, to sign them and say, you know, I just got into Tiki last year or I just got into Tiki two years ago, you know, which is great. I think there's always new people that it are is. discovering. And, you know... We're starting to skew younger as well. It used to be uh, Tiki mugs, you know, the Tiki mugs was a gateway drug, but now with with cocktails, that's just really mimicking kind of what... what happened with Donna Beachcomber and from then on you know that's uh, let's face it not all people are art architecture and design right. nerds like like I am you know it, it not everybody it will have one of my books to 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 relate to but m more people will go out and eat and drink and mm -hmm. then f find this yummy cocktail and then maybe see in the menu that oh it has all this description you know, and then in the, maybe there's some history about it in, in the menu. You know, just like like Trader Vic's did with you know right. in the back of his menu. You know, he I mean, you've definitely done some important work. I mean, I, even at our uh, our Thai restaurant, I'm trying to even like slide in a little like tiki education to people yeah. if they come in and they order crab rangoon. And I'm like, 
you know, this is like from Oakland. It's not. It's not. It's not Asian. I'm like, we love it. We all love it. My wife loves it, and we make the best. But yeah, it's like you know. I think people don't realize that that's that's an American invention. So that that brings home this whole absurdity of this cultural appropriation concept. There was an article in the L.A. Times recently by this guy who who's like said, you know, has have tiki bars outlived their time or something like like that, you know. And he was, you could tell, he was really. He kind of liked tiki bars, but he feel like felt guilty about it. So at the end of his article, he wrote a whole paragraph about how recently he had discovered an authentic Polynesian recipe book, and it didn't have any cocktails in it. And now he he was relieved that he could make authentic Polynesian dishes. Can you imagine what that means to American cuisine and cu world cuisine in general if you would insist on only making authentic? Yeah, right. There is no such thing. It would kill off 98% of all cuisine if you would demand authenticity. I Yeah, that, <laughs> so that word drives me absolutely crazy, authenticity, because we, we again, just in my personal life, we have this discussion constantly about... Uh, Thai cuisine, right? Like, right. oh, is it authentic? Oh, this is Americanized. This is Americanized. Right, and, right. and, you know, uh, the things that you can get on our menu, yes, we have crab rangoon. I've been to Asia a lot. You can get crab rangoon there. Yeah. Like, it may have come from Oakland, but, I mean, it's been integrated. And so when people say, is this authentic Thai or is this Americanized? It's like, well, where are you drawing the line, right? Because historically, coconut milk wasn't really added into... Um, Thai curries until like there was started to become more trade from India and right. they said, hey put some coconut milk in okay that works because right. a lot of them were jungle curries or um, even the spices right and you see a, or chili peppers like so if you go back hundreds of years with the traders bringing chilies from Mexico into Asia so it's like where do you draw the line like 1900 and before is doesn't count but it, you know I know and after and so like they're It, that, I hate that question of authenticity. You know? That's, you know, that's what creativity is about, to draw from all sources, from not only from your own culture, from, from world sources, um, you know, and, and, and create something new. And if you want to, you know, control that, that's, that's negating creativity, mm -hmm. basically. Well, Sven, I know you've got some things to do this afternoon. I've got to as well. I'm actually heading out of town here very shortly. I, I really appreciate you coming on. But like before we go, the books, what have you got out there that people can find now? Uh, on well, the Art of Tiki, you know, the Art of Tiki um, was a, a catalog for an exhibition at Luz de Jesus Gallery in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood of, uh, you know, 20 years of tiki art. I love that book, by the way. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I followed along as the ex exhibit was happening and all that, and I just. I, I was, I'm glad I got to do it because Tiki Pop, um, you know, the year the the, the uh, exhibition I did in Paris, and that created this huge catalog that Tashin put out um, with the same name. It it is so all encompassing of the early history from the explorers through Gauguin to Stevenson to Don the Beachcomber. To what Tiki is today, that I almost felt like I couldn't focus enough on the Tiki idol itself. So with the art of Tiki, I was able to do that. It's all about the Tiki and its design and its role in pop culture. And easy and, to get. That's available yeah. on Amazon. And and the other one is now Tiki Pop. Yes, came out in this small version, and I'm I'm it's really super. 
transportable, easy to carry around, easy to refer I'd to. Say it's, it's Take it to the bar with you. greatly on your toilet table. <laughs> <It does. laughs> the other one is quite large, but it's, the other one's like a coffee table book. No, um, but you know, the, uh, Tiki Pop, yeah, the like small version, versions. is perfect uh, toilet reading material. And, it's, and you got Tiki Style, which uh, I was gifted several years ago by my parents. That's basically the, the Reader's Digest of the book of it, Tiki. It, it is, and um, so and I, again, that's that's a great one to have hanging around it's, and it's on the counter next to you at the, in the restroom. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what's uh, you're working on a book next? Are you at yeah, liberty you know, to my, talk about it? As an urban archaeologist, I I constantly see other styles. And things. So um, I, um, my next book is actually called On Mayan Revival Style, which is sort of to me like a predecessor of Tiki. In the 20s and 30s, Americans were all nuts about uh, 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 the Maya and Aztec culture mm-hmm. discoveries. And so they, uh, throughout America, especially and started, of course, in Southern in LA again. But um, so, where you know, can people find you online? Where can we find all this information? Do you have a website yourself that like no, links I'm, to all these things? No, basically, it's Facebook. Is the yeah, best. yeah, that's yeah. it, really. Yeah. Okay. You know, just under my name on Facebook, and, and well, we can tell you're over fifty. You know, it's Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I. I but there, I mean, there's a lot of ways to find you. You know, and we'll link to it through the show notes. But I mean, you know, you're on right. IMDb because you've you've done tons and tons of work in the film industry. Right. Um, I think you even have a Wikipedia entry, which is pretty cool. Oh. Cool. <laughs> I, I think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but right. I, I, I think you do. That's and cool. and so, um, well, as we wrap up, you know, I always like to to ask if you uh, over the years of, of testing all these things and working closely with Jeff and and all these things in California, if you have any. Hangover cures that we might know about. <laughs> Something well, we all need this morning. My my hangover of, of a cure is two uh, vitamin Bs from Trader Joe's, and two Motrin, the night before. Yeah. When I go to bed, I take those and I wake up the next morning and I'm fine. Wow. All right. My pee is yellow, but otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it really uh, it does it for me. Uh, two vitamins, Bs, and two, two Motrins. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's Every time that we're in the same city, I know, I, I know that you have 45 people standing around you trying to vie for your attention, and I usually try to just stay in the back and wave, you know, because I don't want to be that guy up in the front. Um, but I'm glad that we were able to kind of find some time to sit down and talk. And, and for all of our listeners out there, just remember to, you know, subscribe to, to Shift Drink. Um, at this point, I'm sure you probably have. But if you're a new listener, you, you started on one hell of an episode. Um, <laughs> well, you can find us at shiftdrinkpodcast.com. And uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Shift Drink Podcast as well. And you can see uh, pictures of, of, you know, kind of our little trip in Atlanta here and my very first trip to Trader Fix ever. Um, so definitely a homecoming for me. Um, so rate us. It helps. And uh, until next time, guys, cheers. Cheers.